Welcome back to Screen Time with Ron Roper. I'm Rokan. And I'm Richard Roper. A lot to get to today. We're going to talk about the Oscars, the NCAA tournament, and what that's looking like on your screen. And coming up, an exclusive interview with Bob Odenkirk that you did earlier this week. Saul Goodman. Saul Goodman. Yeah, see what you just did right there. Reminding you that Screen Time with Rowan Rubber brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing that drives your overall business success because they believe today's online world is your opportunity. To get started, go to AmericanEagle.com. So the Oscars are now six years away. They are not six years away. They're April 25th. Listen, we're near the end of March already. Time is starting to actually move forward now, Rokan. We're we're slowly emerging from the Groundhog Day-esque existence. We still have to have our, our precautions in place and wear our masks and we're doing all that. But we're starting to see some movement. And that means, yes, the Oscars are actually going to happen April 25th. And what I love about the Oscars this year is Steven Soderbergh is among the co-producers of the telecast. And they're going to try to do some different things. And he sent a letter to the nominees oh, man. this week. It was the kind of letter that you get from your boss, like <laughs> in a memo where they, you knew things weren't going well. And then you get the final memo that you were always dreading, like, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to change things up. And if you don't do it right, you're not going to be here anymore. That's <laughs> kind of the tone of this thing. I love this line. Regarding the practical aspects of the show, our plan is to stage an intimate, in-person event at Union Station in L.A. with additional show elements live from the Dolby Theater in Hollywood. Of course, your first thought is, can that be done safely? I'll be honest with you. I don't think anybody who's attending this is worrying about safety. They're worrying about winning. And, and also, how will I look? What will the camera angles be like? But I like that he's projecting goodness and decency to the nominees. It's, it's Soderbergh has notes for him. Listen, he's Steven Soderbergh. you got to take his notes. For those of you unable to attend because of scheduling or continued uneasiness about traveling, we want you to know there will not be an option to Zoom for the show. That was harsh. A little bit harsh. Yeah. Right? You know, hey, listen, you're a little uneasy. You've got to schedule. You're busy. Well, that's too bad for you. You know, <laughs> then maybe maybe just send a note, I guess. So now that's interesting, though, Ro, because of the other awards ceremonies we've seen, Golden Globes, Emmys, uh, we've seen a lot of the nominees in isolation and doing their speeches. And sometimes it's been kind of good. And sometimes, yeah, it just looks like the Thursday morning Zoom meeting that we all have, you know, with with your fellow employees. So Soderbergh's saying we're not doing that. That doesn't make for good television. So if you can't show up, you can't be there, I guess if you won, we'll just mail you the trophy. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe instead of sending out screener DVDs to all of the voters, they should be sending out vaccinations. You can't let Hollywood jump the line. See, we don't know Everybody's how many of them the got, have gotten the vax yet. So in other words, what he's saying is if you're nominated, congratulations. If you want to participate in the actual telecast, you got to be there. Now, this is about speeches. I love okay. this part of the letter. Okay. Our speech about speeches is how the paragraph starts. Okay. It is our belief the show isn't too long because of the speeches. Having said that, we'd like to say this. With great freedom comes great responsibility. And if you're wondering what we mean by that exactly, we mean read the room. Tell a story. If you're thanking someone, say their name, not their title. Don't say my manager, Peggy. Just say Peggy. 
Make it personal. The audience leans back when they see a winner with a piece of paper in their hand. That's really true. When you see them come out and like, do the thing where they're pulling it out, they go, hold yeah. on, wait just a second. And they put their hand up like, wait, I got to get through all of this. Or they yeah. put their glasses on and they can't find their they're glasses. Cheaters. Well, that's like when, when Pacino wins in recent decades, Al Pacino. And I love Al, but he's always like, hold on a second here. And he's, he's, he's got his glasses and the, the crumpled up note. Uh, where I would disagree with, with the producers there, Ro, is no matter how you thank a, a long list of people who have been influential in your life, there's no way to make that interesting. Unless you tell that story about that junior high teacher who encouraged you when no one else thought you could do it, or your mother who worked the two jobs and encouraged you to you know major in directing, even though no one in your family had ever done anything in the worlds of cinema. If you're thanking your co-stars and your director and everything, I've always thought... Do that separately. Take out an ad in Variety. Call those people. I know people want to hear their names, but unless you have a story to tell, like he's saying, no matter how you thank people, it's always going to be boring, except for the 11 people you think. They're going to find it. That's me. How many times do you hear the same guy getting thanked? And remember, the all-time record for Oscar telecast was Harvey Weinstein. And now you can't even say the guy's name. So if mm. somebody's getting thanked continuously throughout the evening... I'm putting them on a watch list. <laughs> well, that was the thing, even in Miramax's heyday, when, listen, the, the reality is there, there it was a golden age of cinema, you know, kind of this New York, Hollywood, Miramax deal where they made dozens of memorable films, but they also were masters at Oscar campaigning. I like the idea they're trying to do something different here. I don't think a single nominee is going to take any of those notes. They're going to give the speech they want to give the way they want to give it. He, they also do have a note there. They say, you know, as far as uh, attire, you know, because it's always black tie formal, right? And, right. you know, it was always about the gowns and the, the tuxedos. And they're saying, well, we'd like you to dress up. Casual is not cool for this. So it'll be interesting. That I think you'll see understated fashion. And even in recent years when there's been the traditional ceremony, they've gotten away from... Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm, I yeah. totally disagree. Totally disagree. Guys are always wearing tuxedos anyway. Oh, who are you wearing? It's never interesting when they ask the guys. The women will want to do this. They are going to be on television. They have these deals with these designers. You know that's going to continue yeah, on. Yeah, but that's the thing I was going to say, Ro. There's been this movement among the nominees and among some journalists to stop asking that question, that it's demeaning, that it's sexist. Yes, people like to dress up, but that who are you wearing question is now being deemed kind of like a throwback question. Ask them about their craft because you're right. And maybe it's because women's fashions have always been more interesting. But George Clooney does not get asked, who are you wearing? Right, but it's the economics and, of it, though. They know what they're doing there. This isn't like, who are you wearing just because, oh, you're a woman and you're pretty and you're the delicate flower. It's the designer wants that mention. That's why yes. Harry Winston was always a big deal. With Look at my jewelry. Harry Winston yeah. jewelry. But what I'm saying is I, I feel like there's going to be a movement and continue to be a movement away from that just because of that. Because I think people got tired of realizing all we're, he all we're hearing here are product placements. When you get to the female nominees on the red carpet, ask them the same questions you ask the men, which is, tell us about this part. Tell us about why you wanted to do this role. What was it like working with this director? Not, who made your pretty necklace and hair? So we'll see, my friend. What happens there? But I did one year when I was on the red carpet doing the, uh, doing the, you know, the interviews from behind the plastic hedges. Uh, just for fun, I asked all the men, "Who are you wearing?" And only like three of them got the joke. <laughs> the rest of them were just like, "Oh, uh, wait, hold on a second, uh, uh, George Armani, George Giorgio, yes, that guy." Tux for less. Tux. That's what it says. All right. Well, that used to be on Hollywood Boulevard as well. You could get tux for less, but that had nothing to do with the Academy Awards. <laughs> Something else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, 
So the show must go on. Yeah. The people are going to be there. There's always in every Oscar telecast in one of the major categories, there's somebody who doesn't show up anywhere and they just show a picture of them. Yes. So. Yeah. Well, famously for years, another name that's not mentioned a lot in Hollywood anymore, Woody Allen, because he was so anti-cool that he would play he played his clarinet right at some right. club in manhattan some right. jazz club on monday nights the oscars should be on mondays not on sundays so they would just show his picture mm-hmm. there it's usually a curmudgeon well you know he, some he, old old timer who's like or somebody who knows they have no chance you know i'm not gonna win anyway <laughs> in annie hall woody allen basically explains himself in Annie Hall, he goes to L.A. to go do some sort of an award ceremony, and he gets hysterical right. before he does it, and he feels like he he's actually having a panic attack. And as soon as they tell him he doesn't have to do it anymore, he's, like, totally cured. So I think that's really ah, a little yeah, piece of who he is. Yeah. I missed the early 70s when I was a kid because there was always a chance that somebody was going to turn down the Oscar. Remember? <laughs> right. uh, Shasheen Littlefeather. Yeah, Shasheen Littlefeather is the, the name that will live forever when Marlon Brando won for The Godfather. And he sent Sasheen Littlefeather up there to say, basically, you know, and listen, it was a, a very noble cause and something that sh- should still be talked about to this day. For Wounded sure. Knee and Native Americans. It turned out that she was not necessarily a Native American, mm-hmm. was hired for that, appeared in Playboy then after that. But didn't George C. Scott also, he had a problem when he went for Patton because he didn't believe that there should be competition among actors. So he also, you know, wouldn't show up. So I don't know, maybe, you know, I don't know who's got that patent Oscar right now. But no one turns it down anymore. What's about they give it to somebody else? I present this to you. Ving Rames gave a, a Golden Globe, I think, to Jack Lemmon about 20 years ago because it was his hero. And Jack Lemmon was in the crowd. I do, okay, you know, thanks. Yeah, but I think he probably got it back, I right? Doesn't so. Jack Lemmon hand that back to him and go, you're going to want this because yeah. it means nothing to me. Yeah, I think so, probably. All but right. I think it will be interesting just the fact that we're going to have something going on at the Dolby Theater, some elements of production, and then we're going to have this outdoor, the L.A. train station, right? The downtown mm-hmm. Union Station. They're going to be outside. What happens if it rains? Oh, that would be fantastic. <laughs> I know it doesn't necessarily rain all that much in the spring in L.A., but still, it could. You know, it could, and I'm sure they've got the, you know, the thing is, there's only, people get these tents for everything, whether it's restaurants or wedding receptions, and I remember one year at the Academy Awards, it did rain, and they put the big, you know, the big bubble tent over the red carpet, but people still had to kind of jump out of their limos and run to the covering there with umbrellas and everything going on, and it was kind of fun. Well, that's what they moved the Oscars into rainy season. Remember, like in January and February, that's when they were having it. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. They There was a reason that they would have it in the spring, the galas there, because it's dry. That's yeah. a, that is a, I don't know, that's something to do with the Pacific Ocean. I don't know whatever the hell. <laughs> they should have consulted one of those meteorologists with a made-up name on L.A. television. Soderbergh will have notes for you on all of this. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, let's talk about the NCAA very quickly here. Yeah. CBS is doing this all from... Indianapolis. They've got that building that was built in the 1920s that's housing one of the courts. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the court at the Luke. And the protection seems to be throughout the entire city of Indy. Yeah, they decided that they would do it that for COVID precautions. Unfortunately, there was the cancellation of the game between Oregon and Virginia Commonwealth, 
which sounds like some sort of territorial war from the 1800s, <laughs> but it was actually a basketball game. I really feel I feel terrible though for VCU because they had multiple positives right before the game, whether it was players or staff. And the NCAA said, you know what, we're just going to have to cancel this game. You're going to have to forfeit. Because VCU was saying, listen, we've got five or six players who seem to be okay. Can we still do this? And I think the NCAA made the right call, Roe, and they said, we can't take that chance. Unfortunately, Oregon's going to just have to move on without playing. We'll see you guys next year. Uh, a couple other things I wanted to mention to you, and you mentioned CBS. There's also like it's you know you have to find these games. They actually have things on 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 the internet how to watch. We have to be told how to watch the yeah, game. It's confusing because it's TBS and T- True TV, and God bless True TV. But I I keep trying to find it. By the time I find it, the game's over because I'm like, where's that other game? I know that everybody's trying to to make these games sound exciting, but the piped in crowd noise is driving me nuts. It's so over the top. They're going to 11 on the thing. We know that we can see that there's nobody, virtually nobody there. Yeah, a few people. A few there. people there. Just let us hear what it sounds like, man. Don't try to don't try to fake it. It sounds weird though. It sounds like a high school game when you don't actually pump all that crowd in. I don't like the choices they're making with the crowd. You can have partisan crowds at NCAA tournaments, yeah. especially in the regionals. If the region of the team is playing near their school, yeah you get a lot of the students there. So that's always kind of fun. But they, no matter what happens, it's hysterical excitement. That's what I mean. It's just, you know, it just seems way over the top. And, and I will say this, you know, Loyola pulled off this big upset of the Illini, and that was a big game that was on CBS. And a group of Loyola students had some sort of choreographed dance thing going on. And all I can say is the basketball team did a much better job than the choreographed fans in the crowd. I, I saw a lot of Loyola fans saying, take that down. That does not represent our dance moves. It was unfortunate. <laughs> That's a, that is a team that when they make it to the dance, they always make it exciting because they've got Sister Jean, who I think is 101 years old. Yes. She's a, a nun at Loyola, of course, is a Catholic school. And she has become basically the patron saint of the team for decades. She was there, and I swear to God, this is a good thing to swear to Mm. during this commentary she has something to do with their success because they blew illinois away and they're really not supposed to be able to do that against the number one ranked team so i think there was an intervention pretty amazing stuff and i saw you know loyola actually won a national championship in men's basketball in the early 60s and i saw a a story saying you know she was already getting lifetime achievement awards in 1963 right so think about that (laughs) think about that all right and, and then there's this sad story about the kid from ohio state ej liddell Ohio State, number two seed, loses in the first game against Oral Roberts. Yeah, a 15 seed. Right, which sounds like something you buy at Walgreens. <laughs> I was, I did want to see Oral Roberts and Colgate play. There was a tie-in there, but that didn't happen. <laughs> anyway, the point here is this poor kid just got inundated with death threats. It's ridiculous. And, and EJ Liddell, he, he shared on Twitter whether they were text messages or DMs or, you know, comments, whatever the case may be. But people were saying to him they wanted him to die. They were calling him some of the worst names imaginable. And first of all, he had a monster game, okay? You know, but that's really kind of beside the point here. It, it's it's the fact that we, we lose sight of the fact that these college players are 18, 19, 20 years old. The best college basketball players go to the NBA after a couple of years. So they're not even 22 or 23 in most cases, bro. And yeah, they're great athletes. And yeah, they've got, you know, a lot of great things going for them. But I guarantee you that the people that were sending these horrible, hateful, 
vile threats to this player are probably twice his age oh, and older, middle-aged fans who call themselves fans. And, and I love that Charles Barkley called them losers, and a lot of other athletes and former athletes from across the country have reached out to this kid and said, don't let this get you down. And he even said, he goes, I'm just a human being, and I love my Ohio State fans, but what did I do to deserve this? And the answer is, you didn't do anything to deserve this. This is a comment that got me. This, again, from his response. Comments don't get to me, but I just want to know why. Yeah. I've never done anything to anyone in my life to be approached like this. Yeah, Heartbreaking. Just, that breaks your heart to hear that. So the, the you know the, the upside of this is the, the overwhelming outpouring of support, and some of the threats were so personal and had such detail that the police are looking into it. And if they find somebody who made an actual overt threat, they should be charged. No question about it. All right, coming up, your exclusive interview with Bob Odenkirk. He's got a new movie coming out. Yep. What's it called? It's called Nobody. Nobody. What's it about? Well, I'll tell you in just a minute. Oh, all right. Hold on. Well, then I have to tell you this first. Screen Time with Rowan Roper is sponsored in part by Floyd's. Your haircut, your way. Floyd's 99 Barbershop has expert barbers and stylists who take pride in crafting the perfect cut every time. Walk in, book online, or give your shop a call. Learn about their safety practices at floydsbarbershop.com. Safety never looks so good. Bob Odenkirk, of course, is best known for his role as Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman. He was Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad, and then in a brilliant stroke of genius, the creators of Breaking Bad said, let's do a prequel and let's do it about the character of Saul Goodman. And that has become almost as big and almost as acclaimed a series as Breaking Bad. Multiple Emmy nominations for Bob Odenkirk. Ro, he's got a new movie coming out. It's called Nobody. And in this movie, he plays a guy who's a very nondescript. He's got a boring job and a, and a great wife and two kids, and he's just living a very average existence. But it turns out that this guy had a previous life mm. where he was a badass working for the kind of government agencies that don't get talked about too mm. much. We might not even know about all of these super yeah. secret government agencies. So we had a chance to talk to Bob Odenkirk about that and Better Call Saul. But, Ro, it is the law of the video chat interview that the first thing you must ask your subject is, have you been doing any work during the pandemic? I did the second season of Undone, which is an animated show where we act it out and it gets uh, turned into animation. That was done very curiously where you acted alone. Hmm. Uh, even if there was a scene with six people in it, you were utterly alone in the wow. studio. And then they marry your image up with the other people. Um, and I did Tim um, Robinson's sketch show. That was fun. Uh, and uh, and that's it. Otherwise, yeah. I'm back at it with Better Call Saul and all the COVID protocols that we have here. But we're shooting. Well, with nobody, maybe you could just explain a little bit about who Hutch is. Who is this guy? Hutch is a normal, everyday, suburban dad who works at his wife's, his father-in-law's tool and dye plant as an accountant. And he's a guy who's kind of disappeared himself into the background of life. And the drudgery that we all feel from the last year of the pandemic, the feeling of living the same day over and over. And that was, of course, not intentional because we 
made this movie before the pandemic, but that is very much how he feels uh, frustrated by his uh, existence. Um, but it's, uh, it is his own fault. He's a person with a past um, as an agent for various three-letter organizations, <laughs> but he is in the, in the course of hiding himself away so as to not have a violent life, but rather to have a family. And he's kind of overcorrected and, and he's frustrated inside. You mentioned that uh, the, the, you know, the pandemic almost, you know, groundhog day, repetitive type thing that that sequence is so well edited, but maybe it was a little bit uh, fun for you to do. Cause for once all the takes didn't end up on the cutting room floor. You got to do the same scene like uh, 15 times. It felt like you talk a little bit about filming those sequences. Yeah, well, that was a sequence that was invented in editing, my friend. Mm. That's exactly the story we were telling, and yet we put it together in editing that we needed to see and not just hear him talk about his frustrations or his feelings of being disappeared and bored with life, but rather just see him living the same day over and over and getting ground down by it. And uh, luckily, we had all that footage because of uh, how we shot it. It was a really cool invention by the oh, that that's fascinating so when you were filming it you didn't realize that that was the way you were going to go with yeah it. we were just going to see him have a normal morning right but then we realized no repeat that morning you know uh, that's that's what he's feeling inside is that i'm lost in this little loop and i'm disappearing more and more over the years and uh i don't know if i have agency anymore in the world i don't know if anyone you know it's kind of common feelings that dads and moms feel feeling like I don't I don't think I just exist sacrificed to the group the family and I don't get to do anything on my own I don't get to own my life and make crazy choices and of course you don't you you have to serve the family unit but uh, it can be hard and I think it would be quadruply hard for a character like this who were, um, who's had this wild life before the family and now has really had to suck it up. Yeah, this has become your specialty now, playing characters who have had this incredible, surreal, violent, dangerous life and then want to disappear into the into the nowheresville, but maybe, you know, still are thinking about what happened in the past. Yeah. All of us have some version of this. You know, I think it's a pretty common thing if you've been married a long time to add, to look at your partner and think, don't you remember who I was? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't you remember when we met how I was a cool person that you liked and who I was a person who could do whatever I wanted every day and eat what I wanted. And, <laughs> and, and I chose to be with you and, you know, and, uh, and of course everyone feels that way, both, people in a, in a partnership after a long time. And that's life. What are you going to do about it? The style of the film kind of reflects that because it's almost washed out and gray in the early sequences, kind of reflecting, you know, the way Hutch feels about life and his life. And then it becomes more vibrant and hyper real as we get into the, to the action. And I want to talk to you about the action because there's a part of me that wonders, Bob, if you've become a masochist. It's not like Jimmy Slash Saul has a normal desk job. You've had more bandages I mean, you should be in the hair and makeup guild by now. You've had so many bruises and cuts and everything. So uh, can you talk a little bit about the action scenes here, the fight sequences? Because to me, Bob, it felt like 
almost like the difference between practical effects and CGI. The fighting here, the first time we see Hutch really kind of spring in the next, really the second time. Yeah. Uh, you wonder if he's going to be the equalizer, you know, if it's going to be one of those. And it's not. It's a much more realistic thing. Can you talk a little bit about the fighting style and, yeah. and, and doing those scenes? I can. Listen, when I first thought maybe I could do an action film based on the character of Jimmy McGill, I play in Better Call Saul. That that TV show plays around the world, has fans in every country. And I thought action films do as well. They play around the world. And I thought, you know, that character is earnest and striving and gets knocked down and gets back up again. And that's an action lead. So it just lacks the fighting, really. Mm -hmm. But I also thought, what could I do in this world of stunts and action? I could train. I'm not, my body is in good shape. I didn't break my back or my knees or anything over the years. And I could train and I could maybe do my own fighting, which I did. And I could bring some acting to the fighting. Hmm. I think a lot of the action heroes of the last few years have either been superheroes mm -hmm. or almost like machines. You know, when right. Jason Bourne fights, he, and I love Jason Bourne films, uh, but he literally is like on autopilot. That's the story. The story is he doesn't even remember where he learned this shit. So he doesn't even know. It's like his body is fighting without him. But I wanted to do a character who was like, when he gets punched, he's really hurt and he feels it. And, and there's a couple of things in that first fight that are, came from me. And I, I point to these as what I was contributing. The first thing I do in the fight is I hit my head on a bar, right? Yeah. I don't hit anyone. I slip and hit my head. Yeah. Which is such a like, fuck, that's me, man. That's me in a fight. Yeah. That's just not a typical hero. There's almost a, a MacGyver-esque aspect to it where whatever's handy can be used as a weapon, you know, whether it's, you know, in a, in a kitchen or on a bus, which is probably a lot of fun and uh, a super challenge for the props department, right? Because, yeah. you know, I, I can imagine you've got it, you know, you've got everything set. And then you grab the tea kettle and it slips or, or you miss the target. So yeah. that's got, I would imagine there's some long days doing it that way. Yeah, but it's super fun. I mean, we just had a great time shooting these action sequences, man. It was the most fun I've had since being in a comedy writer's room. Really? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you prep the fight, you choreograph it, you learn it. It's a group effort. But when you get to the set, it always has to change at least a little here and there. And then it becomes problem solving and an adrenaline rush. And there's a lot of laughs. And at one point in the fight, the guy who trained me, Daniel Bernhardt, maybe the greatest stunt actor of our generation and our on earth right now. And he's the one who trained me and I beat the shit out of him on the bus. Um, <laughs> he looks at me and he's got bloody teeth and he's got a big smile. It's, 3 a.m. in Winnipeg in October, freezing. Mm. We're outside. And he looks at me and he says, it's like being a kid, isn't it? <laughs> and I said, yeah, it is. I We had a great time. So that kind of thing that you saw in the bus, that's just inventive fun uh, to do. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons I hope I get to make another action movie. That's fantastic. I love that description. There's also this great use of, of music. You know, I, I, it's rare you get uh, Broadway musical numbers and Heartbreaker yeah. by Pat Benatar. 
does uh, does Ilya, your director, does he talk to you about the music that's going to be used in these specific sequences, Bob? Yes. Ilya Nyshuler is a director. He's Russian. He made a movie called Hardcore Henry yep. two years ago. He made it on yep. a shoestring. And it played around the world and, uh, you know, action film that was very liked by action fans. Yep. Uh, he's also a musician. He has a band uh, called Biting Elbows. They're really good. And he's the singer. And you can check them out on YouTube. Um, but, uh, yeah, all that music is from him and from his work. And it's an eclectic collection of music. A lot of it's from the 70s. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, the movie has a, uh, a seventies, eighties, early eighties mm -hmm. kind of vibe to it, you know, um, a little bit feels a little bit handmade, a little less of, like you say, less CGI, less modern filmmaking, more gritty human beings made this movie and, uh, our kind of movies, let's just say it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I love. I yeah. love. Had you ever worked with Christopher Lloyd before? No, and Christopher Lloyd has never made an action movie before. Uh, he was absolutely thrilled. He was as happy as his character is. Um, just grinning and laughing the whole time with all those shotguns around his neck. He and loved it, loved it. And we had so much fun. I picked him up and we went out for lunch in Winnipeg and he was just jazzed at making an action film. And it's kind of great when you see him because, of course, we know all the, you know, the, the, the broad humor and the subtle humor he's done. But he's got a real physical presence, you know, that you believe that this guy could pull off what he could do. It's a really, really remarkable. He, he is an amazing actor. He is just, uh, you know, there's people who have a presence on screen that is unique and, and special. And when you meet him in person, you're like, well, he's just a very nice guy, you know, I mean, but when you put him in front of that camera, he emanates a, a, a likability and a power that is really wonderful. I just love when someone who's got a chance to do so many things gets to do something new 40, you know, years into their career and they get you know, a new opportunity like that. Yeah. It's so cool. Are you in production now on Saul with, with yes, the sir. Saul girls? And, and yeah, we're shooting Saul right now and it's going really well and it's going to be uh, one big explosion after another. It's going to be a hell of a final season. I remember I, I, very quickly, I got to tell you, I, I used to do stuff for the Reels channel years ago at the Albuquerque Studios. So uh -huh. I remember when I first went there and they, they took me on a tour and they said, we're building the sets for this new show that's coming up. And and there, you know, I saw these, and I had no idea what it was going to be. I'm like, okay, this is somebody's living room. This is somebody's law office. But oh uh, man, yeah, what an amazing journey! Wow, yeah, that's so well, cool. Listen, it's always good to see you and talk to you. Congratulations on this film. I love seeing you doing something different and knocking it out of the park, Bob. Thanks, Richard. Thank you so much. All right, we'll talk soon. I hope. Take care. Yeah. See you in Chicago. You got it. That guy sounds just like Bob Odenkirk. It's amazing, right? What an incredible career, too, because when you go back, you think all the things he did before that, Bob Odenkirk, he wrote for Saturday Night Live. He wrote for Ben Stiller, so he's a, he's a writer. And he had a nice career going as this comedic actor. But then this next level, you yeah. know, at, at an age where a lot of actors are like, well, I'll just do character work, and he's, he's really run with the role. Want to also mention, Ro, we do this every Tuesday on the podcast. Who to follow? 
Got to follow somebody interesting on the interwebs, right? So I want to recommend Pat Ford. He's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He often does a lot of good breaking news tweets during March Madness, and he's at by Pat Ford, B-Y-P-A-T-F-O-R-D-E, at by Pat Ford. Follow him on Twitter for a lot of good scoops during March Madness. Oh, that's a very, very good tip. Roan Rover Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. And as always, we want to thank everybody who's been listening to the Screen Time Podcast. We appreciate all the feedback. Please continue to listen. We love our downloaders and our subscribers, and tell your friends. Executive producers for Screen Time, Tim Melanius and Renee Nelson. Music and production director, Brian Altimer. See you next time.